The following is a Pro Football Network podcast, the primary voice for pro football at profootballnetwork.com. Welcome back to Between the Hashes, a college football NFL draft and general NFL podcast for Pro Football Network. As always, I'm Cam Meller, joined with the great Tony Pauline, as usual. How we doing, Tony? Okay, okay. We're getting a little bit deeper into the season. Uh... Weather here in New York is, I guess, turning a little bit. I uh, haven't had the, the opportunity to uh, rake my lawn yet, but that, I'm sure that's going to be coming soon. But uh, everything's good, good on this end. Thanks for asking. Yeah, it uh, it reached 44 today in Columbus, Ohio. So we got the real taste of fall. I didn't believe everybody when I saw it trending first day of fall yesterday. And now here we are, 44. The, both kids needed extra blankets. You know, the usual, got to bust out the things we didn't. Uh, I forgot to have to bust them out, but hey, here we are. So let's uh, let's set the tone. That means it's officially week four of college football, week three in the NFL, a Thursday night game. We'll discuss that a little bit here, but I want to open it up with the New York Jets. It was the talk of the town. I'm obviously a big Zach Wilson fan uh, from his game on the field, but also as a person in the family that I know. Uh, so Zach Wilson struggles, the 0-2 Jets, now 0-2. He throws four interceptions against the Patriots. It's obviously Bill Belichick knows what he's doing to coach against rookie quarterbacks. That was documented from the broadcast to everybody and their mother on Monday, Tuesday. But the big question among all of New York media, but also people, uh, draft scouts, people that watched the draft over the past few years, Denzel Mims, second round pick last season or the 2020 NFL draft. He was a healthy scratch for the game. So let's, let's rewind the clocks. You broke the news in, in August about Mims struggling with the offense during training camp. Uh, he had a severe bout of food poisoning during the summer. Is there any more light we want to shed on the Mims situation with the Jets? The bottom line is this. Mims is a favorite of the front office, but he's not held in high esteem by the coaching staff, which is a problem. Uh, you know, there was talk over the summer when I broke the story that he was falling down depth charts. There was talk they, they could potentially move him. They could cut him. But they forgot the fact or they didn't know the fact that Denzel Mims suffered from food poisoning. Things seemed to turn around. A little bit, but, you know, he's back in the coach's doghouse. Uh, He played, I believe, three snaps against the Carolina Panthers, one of which turned into a 40-yard reception. Was a healthy scratch last week. Now, I'm told the problem is the Jets coaching staff, the offensive coaching staff, wants Denzel Mims to learn all three wide receiver spots. He is an ex-receiver. He is an outstanding ex-receiver. When I spoke with people yesterday in the league, they say, that's a huge mistake. Don't try and force the guy to learn all three uh, receiver spots when he is a playmaker at the one spot he plays at, the uh, the ex-receiver spot. Fit him into the system. It seems that the the Jets coaching staff are, are, are prioritizing the system over the player. So it's like a lot like fitting a square peg into a round hole essentially with Mims. So that's a bigger question, I guess, or a bigger topic of discussion than what does this say specifically about the Jets coaching staff, which yeah, is well, a, it, it, a rookie regime. Yeah, it's it's what you said is right. You know, he, he's a good X receiver. Find find ways to get him on the field as an X receiver. Don't force feed him to be a wide a wide receiver and another receiver. I, I think at this point in time, and we're still very early, obviously in the season as far as well as the, the uh, head coaching career of uh, Sala and his staff, it, it's got to kind of raise a red flag because when you have a guy like Denzel Mims, who when he was on the field and he was injured for uh, the first half of his, uh, of his rookie season, but when he's on the field, all he does is make plays. 
yet you're you're kind of turning against him or you're you have a grudge against him and you're not playing him because he doesn't fit the system it, it's sort of like i said you're prioritizing the system over the player rather than putting the best players on the field the guys who are going to give you the best uh, opportunity to win it, you know it's the system that that is uh, held in priority which is not good look at quinn and williams i mean quinn and williams who looked like he was really turning the corner last year and was finally going to live up to expectations and be the player, which he was at times in 2020, uh, that the Jets thought he could be and the rest of the league thought he could be when he was the third pick of the draft. I mean, he's got five tackles this year. He's been, uh, he's basically has, uh, it's been a disappearing act. Uh, so I think the problem is, is the, the, the coaching staff, the Jets coaching staff, has to find a way to integrate these players, to put them in positions to be, you know, to do what they do best to make plays. Someone said to me, they said, you know what? For all the grief Adam Gase got, and he deserved a lot of grief, he found ways to get Denzel Mims on the field and for Denzel Mims to be a playmaker when he was healthy. So far, the first two weeks of the uh, 2021 season, we haven't seen that from the new coaching staff. Yeah, there's some red flags uh, but then when you're compared to or even held lower on a, on a podium uh, uh, than Adam Gates, that's even even bigger red flag, almost a, a white flag saying, hey, I surrender at this point. So bringing it back to hand, though, to the topic, Denzel Mims, a healthy scratch. You see that oftentimes. But if we see more healthy scratches, there's obviously multiple reasons to be a healthy scratch. But if we see more of it for Mims specifically as a healthy scratch, your August piece stated that no one expects the Jets to move Mims trading or cutting him is that still true or i guess is that still the case or with healthy more healthy scratches is is the the chance for that happening more so yeah they're not going to cut him i mean joe douglas cannot cut denzel mims uh could they trade him i'm sure if there's some good offers made and the coaching staff it, it is ardent that they're not going to put him on the field they could potentially trade him douglas has got to be very careful with uh, denzel mims for a couple of reasons i mean the 2020 draft, his first draft with the Jets, he had nine picks. Really, two of them have panned out. Mickey Becton, who's hurt, and Brandon Mann, the punter, out of necessity. Bryce Hall has shown some good things at cornerbacks. Uh, so, I, I mean, you haven't had a lot of product productivity from the 2020 draft. The other thing is the 2020 draft, going into it, was known as, or it looked on paper anyway, to be a, a historic receiver draft. And the Jets were in desperate need of a receiver. And they got one receiver, Denzel Mims, who when he plays, he's very good. So if you get rid of Denzel Mims, you better get something really good back in the return because that would be just be a wasted pick. Could be a wasted opportunity for Denzel Mims. I, they're not going to cut him. All right? I, I'd be shocked if they cut him. Could they move him uh, if, if the right offer is made? I could see this happening. I could see Denzel Mims, if he continues to get this treatment, demanding a trade or asking for a trade when the season's over. Hey, I mean, yeah, a lot of that will also mean, ultimately depend on where this team goes and where Zach goes. Yeah. We're, we're two games in, small sample size for a quarterback. You've said it. The The old line was three years for a quarterback to adjust. So there's still time. And there's still hope. Don't don't abandon all hope. Uh, Jets fans, BYU faithful after a four-interception performance for Zach Wilson. So there's still a lot to be going on here. Uh, I mean, you mentioned it as well. The Carl Lawson injury hurts hurts him as a franchise too. We've seen what happens. So I have just sort of a curveball off the off the topic or on the topic, but off the the plan discussion points here. What did they do? Did they they have Corey Davis? 
but they still, if they don't have Mims come the end of the season, they're try, picking top five right now. Is there a receiver or is it offensive line in the top five picks that they got to go with in the, the 2022 NFL draft? No, I, I think it's going to be either a cornerback, whether it be Stingley, or I think if they're top five, you got to look at Thibodeau, the Kayvon Thibodeau, the uh, pass rusher, who I think would be perfect for that defense. And he would be a playmaker. Even though you're getting Lawson back, you don't know what you're getting back from Lawson. You only have him for two years. Uh, I mean, I would be in favor of Kayvon Thibodeau from what I've seen on him on film. I think he's got less of a bust factor uh, than uh, uh, than Stingley. Um I think you've got to take the best player available. And I think the best player available where we sit right now will be one of those two players. Interesting. All right. I like it. I'm, I'm doing a mock draft. So it might, it might've been help for my myself here going, going forward when I write this mock draft. So, all right. So one last thing on the jets. Now that I've got my mock draft question out of the way, we're speaking about Joe Douglas here. Does he survive if the jets have another bad season? It's an interesting question. I think much of it will depend on the development of Zach Wilson, which is his pick. Remember, you know, earlier this year when there was talk about whether the Jets going to take a quarterback, whether they're going to take Sam Darnold, I had said that people in the league were telling me, this was well before the Sam Darnold trade, was that Joe Douglas would trade Darnold and take Zach Wilson because Zach Wilson gave him a little bit more time, gave him, gave him a little bit more job security. Now, if Zach Wilson continues down the path that we saw against the Patriots, and I don't think he will, but if he continues down that path, it may be, it may be trouble for uh, Joe Douglas. What I find most interesting is how the conversation about Douglas has changed in the past year. I mean, a year ago, Joe Douglas, when you talk to Jet fans, you listen to people in New York, he was a Teflon man. I mean, you couldn't criticize him. Gosh forbid you criticize Joe Douglas. But here we are a year later. The team, I believe, is 9-25 under Joe Douglas. They were worse in 2020 than they were in 2019. His first full season as a GM, although we didn't draft that year and he didn't have a free, he didn't get to sign free agents. They don't look right now much better than they were in 2020. And I think the disconcerting there is when you look at NFL teams on a week to week basis, the biggest appreciable improvement of a team, the, the best, the biggest development on a team from a week-to-week basis usually happens between week one and week two. doesn't mean that a team won't be better in November and December than they are in September. It just means that their greatest improvements usually take place between week one and week two. There was none of that with the New York Jets. Um, so getting back to Douglas, I mean, people are getting a little bit antsy. Uh, like I said, the 2020 draft, not a lot of production. Uh, the free agency class, free agency signings, not a lot of production. Granted, Carl Lawson got injured. That's not his fault. And Carl Lawson looked like it was going to be a great signing before the injury. I, I do find it fascinating how the conversation has uh, changed from Joe Douglas being a Teflon man a year ago to now you're starting to hear griping about Joe Douglas. And let me say this about Jeff fans. You know, I was I went to the game on Sunday. I go to all the Jet home games. And I'm listening to the post-game show on the way home. And they're talking about frustrated Jet fans, frustrated Jet fans. Jeff, Jet fans aren't frustrated. They're, they're realists. I mean, I mean, I mean this, is, this is reality for, for what goes on with the New York Jets. Don't demean them by saying they're frustrated. Maybe they're angry, but they're also realistic. I mean, they're being told, got to be patient with Zach Wilson. You know, he's only a rookie. That's fine. Jet fans heard this three years ago with Sam Darnold, who, by the way, is, is knocking it out of the park with, with the Carolina Panthers right now. Shocking, Shocking that, that Sam Darnold is uh, doing well. It's almost as if you knew he was still a good quarterback, and we've talked about that. We can get into that. Let, let's see another game here. I'm, I'm excited to see him on Thursday night and get the uh, the general NFL fans to watch him 
against the Texans. It's, it's almost a showcase game for uh, Darnold and Christian McCaffrey in this this Carolina Panthers offense. So let's go back here to college football now, and let's stay Zach Wilson's old rival. The Utah Utes yeah. have been a quarterback transfer product of the last two years. This year, Charlie Brewer from Baylor wins the job, beats out another Big 12 transfer, Cameron Rising from Texas. Brewer starts the first three games, gets benched against San Diego State, and now he has left the program yeah. at Utah. I don't know what this says more about, whether it says more about Charlie Brewer or whether it says more about head coach Kyle Whittingham at Utah. It's also a place where quarterbacks seem to go to, you know, to go to die. I mean, last year it was Jake Bentley, right? Jake Bentley, who I don't know what I saw first. Jake Bentley throw his first college football pass or Led Zeppelin Live in 1977. But Jake Bentley, who, you know, fell out of favor in South Carolina, transferred to Utah. Now he's doing a decent job in South Alabama. And there's a chance Jake Bentley could find himself in the late rounds of the NFL draft. As far as Jake Brewer is concerned, I just never saw that as a good fit. I mean, the wide open offense in Baylor where where basically he had uh, he could throw the ball wherever he wanted to in, in that sort of environment. I thought that was the better fit for him. I didn't think uh, Utah was going to fit him well. As far as an NFL draft prospect is concerned, scouts grade him as a seventh rounder. I think he's a free agent. I think he's more of a game manager. It'll be interesting to see where he uh, where he ends up. I, I mean, and you're right. Utah, does it say more about the player? Or does it say more about the coach? I think right now it's got to be the system and the coach more than the player when you see what's going on, not with not not just with Jake Brewer, but with Jake Bentley. Yeah, you look at uh, this Utah team. They've not really been known for offense since Urban left. They've been known for uh, defense. And right now the defense is not quite playing up to those standards that we've seen from uh, that 2019 defense that was that's all across the NFL at this point. Blackman, Johnson, all these kids. So – I'm interested to see three games he played so he can still redshirt and transfer and sit, have his redshirt year and play next year. So Charlie Brewer, the new Jake Bentley, Charlie Brewer. So let's review week three, though. Let's stay in the Pac-12. Let's start there. UCLA, everybody's darling for some reason to start yep. the season. Fresno State comes in, dramatically defeats them. To me, that wasn't a surprise. I said that that was the safest bet of the week was to pick Fresno State to cover 11 and a half, and I thought they would win outright. Needed some magic. But Jake Hayner, the quarterback, continues to prove his worth, not only as a college quarterback, but potentially for the NFL draft. Well, I spoke with somebody about Hayner at length, and they said to me, you know, I don't know if Hayner is a, is a legit NFL prospect. He doesn't have a great arm. But all the guy does is win. He's incredibly accurate. He does a great job managing the game. He has a great sense for what's happening on the field. I'm with you, and we said it on this podcast. I was never a believer in UCLA, even when they were on the high of beating LSU, I thought it was more uh, an instance of LSU just not being as good as people uh, thought they were, as opposed to uh, UCLA being, you know, so much better and so much more dominant beating an SEC team. But getting back to Hayner, I, I mean, listen, when a guy wins and he wins in the fashion that Hayner is consistently doing, scouts are going to take notice. So could he get drafted? Absolutely. In the late rounds. There's no doubt about it. I think uh, he gets an invitation maybe to uh, to the Shrine game, possibly to the Senior Bowl, depending on how many quarterbacks they have. He probably gets a, a combine invite. If he shows arm strength and if he shows the ability to make NFL throws, definitely he's going to uh, slide into the late rounds because you know what? We know he's a leader. We know he's a tough guy. Very accurate. The scout I spoke with was just incredibly impressed 
with his accuracy and the way he places the throws. So we know he's got all the intangibles. The question is, does he have the physical skills to play at the next level? Or is he going to be someone that, you know, is on and off practice squads from a week to week basis? That will be the determining factor as to whether or not he gets selected in the draft. You have to remember too. I think a lot of people that watch college football, they, they don't, they don't watch group of five. Hayner was a Washington transfer was once recruited by Chris Peterson at Washington transfers away. He's got group of five power five talent, group of five talent. He's got all the talent across the, the, the board there. That Nevada Fresno state game should be a fun one. We can get to that when it comes time for it, but Carson strong versus Jake Hayner. I think Hayner and the Fresno state team is that emergence is helping the other players. There's a defensive end, Aaron Mosby for Fresno yeah. state. Ronnie rivers, longtime mountain West, great running back, Ronnie rivers, who all he does is score touchdowns holds the record now at Fresno state for most touchdowns. It helps guys like that. And that's what I love to see the most. Yeah. Mosby was a real good linebacker in 2019 kind of took a step back and, you know, you, you, you say Hainer's a, uh, a, a transfer from Washington. How much would, why, how much does Washington wish uh, he was playing for the Huskies these days? Uh, a lot. Uh, now you realize you got to keep your homegrown talent. So maybe that's why they start uh, fabulous true freshman Sam Heward sooner than later. So don't 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 put a lot of stock in the performance against Arkansas State's defense and Dylan Morris and his multiple touchdowns there. Anybody can throw on Eric Arkansas State. So let's go to two secondaries that you can't really throw on in the next game of our review. Indiana versus Cincinnati. It's sort of lived up to the hype, in my opinion, yeah. from a game standpoint. Did it live up to the hype in your eyes or in the NFL draft prospect standpoint, or was it more just a great college football game? No, I I think we saw some good performances from next level players. It was a terrific game. I mean, uh, my Jay Sanders had his moments. He was controlled early in the game, but he did have his moments. I thought Ahmad Gardner, who I'm not the highest. I thought he played very well in spurts. Uh, Alec Pierce, the receiver from Cincinnati, obviously had a marvelous game. A big, strong guy, short-handed uh, receiver who some scouts graded as a fourth-rounder. question is, can he separate at the next level? But Desmond Ritter had his moments. Devin Matthews, the receiver from Indiana, actually played much better, I thought, than uh, uh, Ty Freifogel, the uh, bigger, Indi- bigger, more well-known-named receiver uh, from Indiana who had problems holding on to the ball. One guy to keep an eye on is Cincinnati running back Jerome Ford, the Alabama transfer, getting a lot of chatter chatter in the scouting community, sort of a bigger downhill. You know, they had the kid Dokes last year who's now on an active roster of Cincinnati. That sort of ball carrier. Scouts like him a lot. Uh, I I also like Matt Bedford, and I wrote about him a lot uh, in in the risers and sliders this week. He was one of my risers. The former right tackle, who I thought was a terrific tackle, they pushed him inside the guard. I thought he did a real good job at guard, uh, unlike Thayer Munford, uh, Munford the week before uh, of Ohio State. I, I thought he looked really good at guard, showed uh, mobility, agility, and you know he's a big guy with terrific power. I, I thought overall it was not only an entertaining game, but we saw a lot of good things from uh, NFL prospects. I love that. It was uh, the, the ejection of Mike and McFadden sort of changed the trajectory of the game in terms of the win-loss. Yeah. Uh, the game itself just, I mean, it really set the tone for Saturday worth of beautiful college football watching. So that leads perfectly into the next one, the 3.30 on the East Coast game, Alabama versus Florida. My biggest takeaway was that Alabama sort of lacks a top-tier defensive front player, whether that's front seven. They're typically dotting the T's and crossing the I's across the NFL draft of, of those, the interior players, edge players, and linebackers. I think Florida manhandled them on the offensive line, at least the second half, not the first half. 
Yeah, I, I don't think they have a playmaker. I think they got some good guys who flash ability, but I, I don't think they have a true playmaker. I, I will agree with you. I thought Mechie was okay. It wasn't great. John Mechie's starting to remind me of, of my scouting report on Jerry Judy in the sense that he's a big play receiver, but he needs space to work. And that was my my concern about Jerry Judy is when you get him in a crowd, when you get him in basically uh, battling in man coverage, he's not the same guy as when you get him in open space. I thought that Kerry Elon had his moments. Zach Carter had his good moments, had his moments. It was a good battle against Evan Neal. Yeah, but I would, I would agree with you. I mean, um, Christian Harris, who was one of my favorite linebackers from Alabama coming into the year. I mean, he had, a, he had decent stats, but he also made a lot of mistakes on the field. And, you know, that was another real good down-to-the-wire game, which Florida just fell short. Yeah, I think Harris being the top of some boards on, on for interior linebacker prospects, it's it shows sort of the discrepancy and talent gap. I think I don't think there's a top tier linebacker, and I could be wrong in that regard. The NFL draft, we can get into that when we do positional breakdowns at some point, which I'm I'm sure we will. So the three thirty game led us to the eight o'clock game. Another SEC team taking on a Big Ten team. As a college football fan through and through, to start off my football career here. It was truly terrific to see the whiteout back and see fans in the stands at Penn State and have the atmosphere back. Overall, I was happy for James Franklin to get the win and for Penn State to do what they were able to do. What was your biggest takeaway from Auburn, Penn State? Yeah, and to see an SEC team, you know, travel to State College. When was the last time that happened? I, I mean, there were a couple of them. Let's start with Bo Nix, who I've been, you know, and a lot of other people have been uh, not favorable towards, if you will. I thought Nix. He showed the, he's definitely improved. He still has some wild throws. He's still off the mark. But I think compared to where he was the prior two years, there's a definite improvement there. Is it an improvement where he's going to jump into the middle rounds of the draft? No. But he's still heading in the right direction, and he uh, he deserves credit there. I thought that Colby Wooden had his moments. They lined him up inside. They lined him up outside. You can just see the great explosion um, that he has. As far as I was concerned, I thought Jahan Dotson, the receiver, was one of the best players on the field. And I spoke with a scouting buddy of mine who was at the game, and he said, you know what? He said that Auburn secondary with Roger McCreary, Smoke Monday, Nehemiah Pritchett, that is a good secondary. Not only just a good college secondary, but a college secondary with next-level prospects. And Dotson had his way with him. And Dotson is someone, the the Penn State receiver, that's like as a second-round pick. I was a little bit cooler on him coming into the season, but he's really living up to expectations uh, and, and he really had a terrific game. And then, you know, there's Rasheed Walker. I know I'm partial to Rasheed Walker because I've been on him since his redshirt freshman season. I thought he was a terrific pass protector. He's very mobile. He's got to learn to finish his run blocks. But he showed me a lot during that game, really shutting down Colby Wooden for most of the time, even though Wooden was able to make some plays when he was moved around. Yeah, I was I was taken more aback by Dotson's ability to get off the ball quick but also find the holes in the cover schemes whether it was zone or whether there was man on him, he was able to get past both levels of defense in terms of corners or safeties, however they were playing him off. And then the skills, uh, the, the ball skills at the catch point, Dotson I thought was, like you said, the best player on the field. So I agree with you there. So you talk Walker though, and I think it's it's hard to find a highlight real play for left tackles unless they're pancaking somebody. It's a, it's a very thankless position, tackle offensive line in general. You can only get credited for things you allow, sacks allowed. Pancakes are sort of a made-up stat, in my opinion, to make them feel a little bit better. They don't do a good job of tracking them anyway. But Rasheed Walker did his, did what he, you know, if you listen last week, we told you to watch. It was going to be a good battle. 
Do you have any news or, or is there any more insight on Rasheed Walker now that we're sort of three games into his season? He just put up a great performance against an SEC team and then they're, they're switching to Big Ten play here going forward. Rasheed Walker, though. Yeah, I, I'm told that I don't want to say that he's chosen an agent, but I'm told that he has an agent that he's very comfortable with, which leads me to believe that he's heavily leaning towards entering the draft. Uh, I'm not ready to put it out there and say Walker is going to enter the draft, but the feedback I'm getting is he's basically set with an agent and that's the way he's headed. And why not? I mean, he, I have him graded right now as a early second round pick. I think when you look at the way that he plays and his ability and pass protection, his flexibility, his fundamentals, the ability to slide out, I absolutely think he can be a first round pick. Want to see him just improve his run blocking strength. But the word right now is that, or, or the feedback I'm getting, the sense I'm getting, is that very good chance Rasheed Walker enters the draft. I believe at my first uh, stab at a mock draft a year ago, Pro Football Network, uh, late October, early November, I did have Rasheed Walker in the late part of round one. Listen, pass blocking left tackles are always a premium and always a priority uh, come draft weekend. And that is what Rasheed Walker does, never mind the fact that he can get out on the second level and block in motion. Yeah, I think that's what a pe people need to understand, too, when you look at like a draft board and the player might have a second round draft grade, but it's at a premium position of need, but also of desire in the NFL. Quarterbacks obviously are vaulting up draft boards to top tens, even though they may not be that good. Left tackles, pass blocking left tackles are, I mean, there's a reason Donovan Smith with the Bucks got a massive extension and he's a, yeah. he was a terrible left tackle, but he was serviceable at, at times for them. And now he's blossomed and he's gotten much better. But hey, another Penn State left tackle. So and you talk about, you know, you talk about you know, the highlight reel films, the pancakes, big deal. <laughs> I mean, scouts uh, don't care about that. They want to see if the guy bends his knees. They want to see if he gets his hands up quickly, if he uses his hands correctly. He wants to see if he can adjust, if he can move left and right to pick up the blitzes or, or the stunts in the games up front. Rasheed Walker does that all, all, does that very well. Yeah, he throws in a few pancake blocks, but a pancake block isn't going to move an offensive tackle prospect from the third round to the first round. It's the ability to play with proper fundamentals. It's the ability to move lightly on your feet with balance. It's the ability to slide out and pass protection. Walker does all those things very well. I remember when I was getting into this and I saw pancakes as a stat and it was a, it was a thing people tracked. And I was like, I'd rather not have a pancake. I'd rather have a toss and then get to another defender to block. I don't want to see my guy lay on the ground for five seconds after pancaking somebody, go get another guy to block. There's always someone else. That's my opinion on pancakes. So, Let's move on to uh, a position that has a bevy of statistics, and I feel like every week or every season there's a new one that is the most new determining factor. So statistics and analytics aside, Spencer Rattler in Oklahoma, they get out of the game against Nebraska because Nebraska shoots themselves in the foot multiple times with some coachable mental errors. But Spencer Rattler, the NFL draft, his decisions are going to sort of impact, in my opinion, the, the 2022 NFL draft. Now, let's read the tea leaves here. Spencer Rattler signed an NIL agreement with one of the major uh, quarterback agents in the league, a, 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 a represent, uh, 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 an agency that represents some of the big-time quarterbacks in the league. So if we read the tea leaves, it seems to me Spencer Rattler is gone after this season to enter the draft. And why not? He's probably going to be a very early pick. I know he's had a struggle. It's been a, a bit of a struggle in the early going. Uh, but I think he's top five material. Uh, going back to the Oklahoma-Nebraska game, I actually, if you follow me on Twitter, I put a tweet out. I said there were two things that were disconcerting to me. The way that Oklahoma seemed to play up only up to its level of competition 
And the way on the brass, you just seemed to kill itself. You said shoot themselves in the foot. I find ways to beat himself and the undisciplined play of Nebraska under Scott Frost. So that was the takeaway from that game for me. That being the case, the sense I'm getting, and it should surprise nobody, when I look at who uh, Rattler signed his NIL agreement with, the next step after the season is the NFL draft. Yeah, it's got to be one of the more unsurprising things they have, lest we forget, too. There's a fabulous freshman, five-star, all-world high school player at quarterback behind him as well. So there's just another one. It's a quarterback factory out in Norman, Oklahoma, and we're going to continue hearing that until Lincoln Riley is no longer the head coach, I I, I feel. So uh, the SEC might be a fun welcome for them. Hey, who knows? Uh, 2025, we still have a long ways away. Let's let's uh, let's do that, though. I, I a natural person of transitions here today, apparently, because the next thing we want to talk about was week four preview for college football. The SEC will welcome Oklahoma and Texas in a few years. They welcome Texas A&M a few years ago. Texas A&M finally feels like this could be the year. There's a chink in the armor of Alabama, perhaps. Texas A&M has all the players, maybe not a quarterback. They're dotting they're dotting everywhere with with NFL level talent. It seems like no matter which position you look at, there's a player that could be drafted, not just high or, but just in general on every position for them. But then they play this upstart Arkansas team who looked terrific against Texas, which isn't 20 years ago, 10 years ago would have been something, uh, not quite this year, but Texas a versus Arkansas. What are we watching? Yeah. Well, Arkansas, you forgot to mention a team that also joined the uh, sec from, I believe it was the big eight or the big, uh, I don't know if it was, if Arkansas was part of the big 12, they felt like the redheaded stepchildren there being one of the few teams outside the state of Texas. I, I mean, when you look at the board here, it's, it's tilted towards Texas A&M, uh, Jalen Weidemeyer, Isaiah Sprinter, uh, Isaiah Spiller, I'm sorry, Isaiah Spiller, although he, you could probably call him Isaiah Sprinter the way he plays. Uh, Kenyon Green, Leon Neal, keep an eye on a couple of matchups. Keep an eye on John Ridgeway, the Illinois state transfer, who's now playing defensive tackle. Uh, for Arkansas. He was a guy that I highlighted in my Arkansas write-up over the summer. He played incredibly well against uh, Texas, missed the first game of the season, I believe, with an appendectomy or some sort of minor uh, surgical procedure. He was dying to get on the field. The the coaches said no. Uh, He is a guy who I have him graded right now as a fourth-rounder. He keeps playing. the Ridgeway keeps playing the way he's playing, an athletic interior uh, defensive lineman. He could move into the second day. One of the other matchups is Michael Clemens, the defensive end from um, uh, from Texas A&M, up against Myron Cunningham, who comes back for his uh, second senior season. Cunningham was a guy who's been given draftable grades the past two years. He's a late round pick, but if he has a good game against uh, uh, against Clemens, you know that will help his draft stock. And of course, you know, can Jalen Catalan? Uh, everyone's favorite safety for good reason. Does he have a chance? You know, how, how's that matchup against Jalen Weidemeyer, who is my number one tight end on my board, and I think a surefire first-round pick? Yeah, Catalan is super fun. Two interceptions to start the season, a pick, almost a pick six. I mean, it was or a couple yards away from two pick sixes, I believe, if memory serves. We're getting to the point where I'm forgetting week one happenings, and it's doesn't that doesn't happen to me until about week four. So I, I love the Arkansas team and the direction they're going. With Sam Pittman at head coach, they're always going to be super well coached in the trenches. I'm loving the upstart around the other positions, the skill players. So Arkansas is a fun team. I remember the over-under for wins last year was two and a half for Arkansas, and I said blow that out of the water, and they they, they barely did. But, hey, they're, they're a program on the rise. This is yeah. a, sort of a statement game for them if they can even look, you know, com- competent against Texas A&M, I think, is a good one. But, hey, who knows? We might get a, a much better game than we're anticipating. So 
I think this next game, though, we're going to talk about is probably one of the – I don't think if you wrote it on paper, maybe we'd talk about it to start the year because Baylor was so down in the dumps last year. But here they are, Baylor looking amazing. They get Iowa State. And this one has Big 12 ramifications written all over it. Also next-level players across the board, too. Now, Iowa State and their quarterback, Brock Purdy, who have not lived up to expectations. I mean, they pounded UNLV last week, but, <laughs> I mean – UNLV is what's is the recipe is the uh, the prescription for a, a struggling team. I, you know, Baylor has a couple of really good underrated players in their defensive back seven: Terrell Bernard, the linebacker; Jalen Pitry, who's sort of a hybrid linebacker safety, although he's a little bit smaller; J.T. Woods, another good player. Want to see how these guys do against Charlie Kohler. Charlie Kohler is graded by most scouts as a second-round pick. I have him as a third-rounder. I just don't think he's fast enough to be a top 45 selection, although he's a real good uh, tight end, a good pass-catching tight end. Want to see how Brock Purdy does against these uh, these players as well. The Baylor kids are underrated. I mean, they make plays. Brock Purdy is also graded as a second-round choice by some scouts. I have him much deeper in the draft because I just don't think his talents, while I like him as a college quarterback, I just don't think his talents project all that well to the next level. Big game for Iowa State in the Big 12 standings. Big game for Iowa State NFL prospects against an underrated group of defensive back seven players from Baylor. Yeah, and I think, too, I've talked about him before, but head coach or offensive line coach Eric Mateos, offensive coordinator Jeff Grimes come over from BYU. We saw what they were able to do at BYU with the recruiting budget and the prowess that the Big 12 offers to Baylor, Mateos, and Grimes. They got Jacob Gall, the transfer center from Buffalo. Connor Galvin at left tackle looks amazing. Xavier Newman-Johnson at left guard. I think this is the best offensive line in college football right now as a cohesive unit. There's five players up front that are – among the best of their position. And I think that's probably, in my opinion, that's the more underrated battle from this game is I don't know if, you know, Iowa State doesn't have the chops up front. They might get manhandled at the point of attack from this offensive line. And I'm incredibly excited to watch that Baylor offensive line on the national stage. Yeah, Xavier Newman-Johnson, versatile guy. I mean, you want to talk about the veritable dancing bear, a guy who's a little bit shorter, probably almost as wide as he is tall, but easily moves around the field. You said guard can also play some center. Another guy who uh, went back for a second senior season. Uh, good next level prospect in a specific system or for yeah. a specific system, I should say. A lot of fun, but yeah, it's a uh, the 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 influence over what was considered the worst offensive line in the Big Twelve. Eric Mateos, Jeff Grimes get there, and here we are talking about them. It's not just the best in the Big Twelve, but possibly the best in the country through three weeks. So. Make sure you watch the battle in the trenches between Iowa State and Baylor, among everything else. This was Between the Hashes. For a full review, make sure you subscribe to all of your streaming podcast platforms. Check us out on YouTube as well. And all the great work we're doing over at ProFootballNetwork.com, not just on the NFL draft, college football, but NFL side and fantasy football as well. Tony Pauline, once again, I'm Cam Miller. Appreciate you listening.